We'll be reading from Luke 24. Uh, That's on page 884 if you're using the Bibles in front of you. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment, but on the first day of the week at early dawn they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body they went in to find. Oh, the body of Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you? while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and the mother of James, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. I do encourage you to have a copy of God's Word open uh, to that text that Lisa just read for us. Uh, We're actually going to focus on the, the passage that comes right after that. I want her to read that for context's sake. Uh, but we will we will get there. So again, if you missed it, it's going to be page 885 uh, in the pew Bibles there, or the Bibles in the seats in front of you. Have you ever forgotten something really, really important? Have you ever had that happen to you? I asked my wife, I was thinking of this illustration, and I asked her, I said, hey, have I ever forgotten something really important? She didn't even have to think for a second. And she came up with something like that. I mean, and I had been spending, you know, 10, 15 minutes beforehand. Like, I don't know if I've ever forgotten anything super important. I asked this question to her, and she's like, oh, yeah, remember when? And, of course, now you want to know, right? Okay. Yeah. So there was a time where I was going to a conference. It was several hours away. And so I'm a few hours into the trip, and I get a phone call from my wife. And she's like, hey, I can't find the van keys. And I had, I said, well, did you look here, here, and there? And she's like, yeah, I can't find them anywhere. I put my hand in my pocket, and what do I have in there? The van keys. I had moved the vehicle, and so I'm driving the other vehicle, and I have the, the two sets of keys to the van. So my wife has this wonderful vehicle sitting in the garage that she can't do anything with. And I'm several hours away. And uh, so I think some friends here probably helped out or something. I can't remember all the details of it. But, you know, I, I, I totally forgot. It stranded my wife. And this was, I think, probably before Isaiah or maybe, I don't know, but my wife and two small children. I stranded them because of my forgetfulness, right? You know, what do we, what do we use reminders for? I mean, appointments and responsibilities and things like that. I mean, think about what, how, many, how much our life is built around 
reminders and things that we do for that. And uh, maybe what do you use for reminders? I, I personally have a calendar that if it, if it gets on my calendar, it's going to happen. If it doesn't get on the calendar, there's no guarantees. And so I, I am someone who just lives off of a calendar. A lot of people use apps and there's little reminders. Uh, you know, maybe use like Siri or something or Alexa and you're constantly setting reminders that way. Um, maybe there's, you're more of the, the analog method, and so you got sticky notes all over your house or something. Uh, uh, maybe you're or a little bit more tech-savvy. You're using, like, air tags or something like that. But why do we need reminders? I think no matter what way we use reminders, we all need them, and we all use them in some way. And why is that? Well, it's because we all instinctively know that we are prone to forget. We're really prone to forget. I was telling someone at the breakfast table today that 95% of my job, I feel like the reason why I'm here is simply to remind people of stuff that they already know. Most of the things that I preach about, most of the things that I talk about, it's not necessarily new information, although there is some of that. There are sometimes it's like, I didn't know that there was that connection in the Bible, or I didn't know that. But in the larger scheme of things, in the big picture, what I'm reminding you about are things that you've probably heard before. But the reality is, is that we are so prone to forget, and we need someone and some things to remind us. And so here's what I would like to do today on this Resurrection Sunday and the day that we celebrate an empty tomb, is I want to remind you of three things, uh, three simple truths. Here they are. I want to remind you that Jesus is alive. I want to remind you that Jesus is present. And I want to remind you that Jesus is transforming lives. Okay, we're going to get that from this text of scripture that I have here. So 1 through 12 was read to us already. I want to draw your attention to verse 13. It's a little bit longer text, um, but uh, stick with me. It's important that we get the whole thing uh, because when we're, we're, when we're preaching, we want to make sure that we're preaching the word and the truth here. So I want, I want to read it with you here. So verse 13 says this, that very day, two of them, and so that's going back to some disciples, by the way, if you look up in verse nine, it talks about that there was all the rest of the people who were with the disciples. We know from later on in this context, this is not referring to one of the, what we know as the 12 disciples or the 11. Um, these are other people who are following that were around that area. So two of them on that very day were going to a village named Emmaus. It was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he, Jesus, said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him out to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They, they were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he, Jesus, said to them, 
O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ, the Messiah, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it's towards evening, and the day is far, now is far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour. They returned to Jerusalem, and they found the 11, and those who were with them uh, gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Let's pray. Father, we want to pause now. We've read your word and we're going to talk about it now. Whenever we do that, we want to ask for your guidance. Uh, this is your word. This isn't our word. This isn't the Bible of our church or the Bible of, the, of me. That This is your holy word. And so as we take some time now to talk about it, Spirit of God, please guide this discussion. Remove distractions. I'm so grateful that we can be together today. But remove those distractions that may pop up in our heads. And Lord, we just pray, God. We just pray that as I communicate, the words that I say would be led by your spirit. And it would be, it would be helpful for those who are gathered here today and who may be listening or watching online. And, and, but most of all, that it would be accurate to the text, God. And so that's what our desire is. So may, may your spirit accomplish this for your name's sake and for your glory. For it's in Christ's name I do pray. Amen. So I told you, Jesus is alive, Jesus is present, and Jesus is transforming lives. First of all, let's look at this concept that Jesus is alive. Now, Luke is recording this for us here, and, and, and this morning I went through just to, uh, to read, and I read once again all the different gospel accounts. The gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the books there in the New Testament. And so I read through all of those accounts again, and, uh, and read through uh, what, what it was, and, and how each one of those authors recorded the resurrection. Here in Luke, he here, uh, he records a, a story here that only Mark actually just kind of makes a passing reference to, but he doesn't talk about any of the details of this. And so this was obviously something that was important to Luke. And so he gives these kind of these three little uh, vignettes, if you will, about Jesus's his appearances after the resurrection here. Um, now, something to remember about Luke is that uh, by trade, he was a physician. And so he was a man of science. Um, and also he was a careful historian. In fact, the reason why this gospel is written is he's writing to give an orderly account uh, to a noble official by the name of Theophilus so that he could, he could prove who Jesus was, but it was, a, it was a historical orderly account. And then the book of Acts is actually part two of that. And so Luke writes two volumes and is a careful historian. who He was one who traveled a, a, a lot on the, the, with the disciples after Jesus rose from the dead. And, and, and so he had a lot of firsthand 
and eyewitness material. So the reason why I bring this up is that Luke here, who is a physician and a careful historian, he's relaying to us these important events here about the resurrection. And so if Luke, as a man of science and as a man of history, do you think he would take an account of a resurrection, someone raising, being raised from the dead? Don't you think he, as a man of science, as a man of history, would take that very, very seriously and check that out? And he does. And so this is what he's recording for us. And he's, he's given this story to us here. And so this is unique to Luke and it has some great significance to us. And that's the reason why we're spending some time in this. But what I want to do is, for, is before I unpack this a little bit further, I, I also want to draw our attention to just maybe one or two other uh, reasons why I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Because let's be honest, this is a big thing. I mean, to believe that someone died and then was in a grave for three days and then rose on his own power again and lived. That's a big thing to believe, okay? Let's be honest here. So why is it that, in fact, I texted someone this morning. I said, you know, I was having a conversation with someone recently and they asked me, they said, do you really have hope of eternal life? And I said, absolutely I do. It's someone I've been having a spiritual conversation with for a long time. And, and, and so I texted this individual this morning and I said, you had asked me, if I have hope. And the reason I have hope is because that tomb is empty. That's the reason why I have hope, okay? And so if, if we're gonna base everything, we heard what scripture read earlier, like we'd be of all people most miserable, right? If this wasn't true. So, so what was the evidence here? Well, it's interesting to me of like how widespread this was during that time. If you're taking notes, just write down Acts 26, okay? I'm not gonna have us turn there or something, but if you're taking notes, just kind of write down Acts 26 because I wanna tell you a story that happened there. The Apostle Paul is on trial, okay? So Paul, he becomes a Christian. Remember, he was Saul before his name was changed, uh, before he converted to following Jesus Christ. Remember, he was a persecutor of the church. He was a persecutor of those who are following Jesus Christ. But yet, Jesus meets him, the resurrected Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus, transforms his life, changes his life. Paul becomes the greatest, one of the greatest Christians to ever live, writes much of the New Testament for us here that we have for us. But in Acts 26, he is on trial. Trial, and he's actually uh, uh, you know, getting ready to be shipped off to Caesar in Rome to stand trial for being a Christian here. But there's an interesting account that happens in Acts 26. There's a visiting dignitary by the name of Festus, okay? So Festus comes in, and he can't wait to see this guy, Paul. He's heard stories about him. And so he sits there with the king. King Agrippa was his name. And he says, I want to meet this Paul guy. And so Paul comes in and he starts talking to him about what he believes. And he's talking about Jesus. And he's talking about uh, how the, Jesus is the Messiah and all this stuff. And then he gets to the point and he talks about how Jesus died and then he rose again. Okay. And then Festus almost like interrupts Paul. You can read about this in Acts 26. He, 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 he interrupts Paul in some ways and he says, you are out of your mind. He says, you're crazy. He said, you, 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 with all this learning that you have, you've gone mad. So it was the idea that someone rose from the dead that Paul was placing his hope on, that Festus, this visiting dignitary, so he wasn't from the area, he says, this is crazy. Now, what's almost interesting in this, and you'll read about this in Acts 26, is Paul's response. What Paul does there is he says this. He says, no, no, no. He says, listen, and he actually turns to King Agrippa here, and he says, I am not out of my mind. He says, I am speaking true and rational words. He says, for the king, so he turns and looks at King Agrippa, who was from the region, from the area here, he says, for the king knows about these things. 
And he says, and to him I speak boldly. He said, I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped the king's notice, for this has not been done in a corner, he says. He says, it's plain. Everyone knows about this. This is, this is history that everyone around here knows that has happened, that Jesus appeared to people afterwards, and people are trying to deal with this. How did this work? And the King Agrippa doesn't, doesn't change. In fact, he actually just says, are you trying to make me a Christian in a short amount of time here? But the point is this. What Paul alludes to here, his proof of the resurrection was that it was an open thing that everyone in the area knew about. And no one was denying it. Or not in a real way, because there was so much evidence to it here. So Paul's testimony supports Luke's testimony here. But what about some more, um, and I use the term modern very loosely here, because this is 18th and 19th century here. But I wanted just to give you a couple of things here, just in case you're, you're thinking this through, and maybe you're on the fence about this, or maybe you believe this, but it's kind of like you, you want answers of like, okay, why is this really true? or whatnot here. Uh, there's a man by the name of, of Thomas Arnold, not the actor Tom Arnold, this is a different guy. He was from 1795 to 1842. He was a professor of modern history at Oxford. And then he was best well known for that he wrote uh, kind of the standard of the history, it's a three volume set on the history of Rome. And here's what he had to say here. He said this, he says, I've been used for many years to study the historicities, uh, the, his uh, the histories of other times and to examine and weigh the evidence of those who have written about them. And I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquirer that the great sign which God has given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. Okay, now in the late uh, uh, 1900s, late, late 1800s, early 1900s, they talked in a uh, lot longer sentences and a little bit different than we do, okay? But the point is what he's saying there is he says, I'm a man of history. I wrote the history of Rome. He said, of all the events in history, there is not more external evidence and source and manuscript evidence and proof of an event than the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's so much manuscript evidence to it. One other, this is a guy by the name of uh, Simon Greenleaf. He was a professor of law at Harvard. And he wrote a book called A Treatise on the Law of Evidence. And again, it's three volumes. And the reason for that was what he did was his, he was looking at um, using the court of law and the rules that the court of law has for evidence in what we have for the resurrection, what we have for Christ. Would it stand up in a court of law here? And he came to the conclusion that according to the laws of legal evidence used in the courts of law, that there is more evidence for a historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ than for just about any other event in history. Okay, so even in the court of law and how evidence would be submitted here, someone who taught at Harvard, someone who wrote this treatise on the subject here says there is so much evidence. So here's the point as I'm trying to make today is that if you're wondering if that tomb is empty or was empty and that Jesus rose again and that he is alive, my friend, he is alive, okay? There's so much evidence to this, and we could spend an entire sermon on it, but that's not the point that I want to draw, uh, spend all of our time on here. Secondly, if you're taking notes, Jesus is present. So not only is Jesus alive, but it's so important to understand that he is present. 
Now, some of you may remember Jesus' promise in the end of the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, where at the end in the resurrection, in the ascension, right before the ascension, uh, uh, he's meeting with the disciples and he's up on the mountain and then he gives them what is known as the Great Commission. Okay, some of you may recognize that. At the end of that, he has a promise. I don't know if you remember this promise or not. But he says, and I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. He promises that he will be with them. And, and we go back to this text here that I read for us in Luke chapter 24 about how that Jesus alive, that we see him alive here. But we also see this very comical conversation that's happening here. Remember this conversation here? Jesus walks up to them. They don't recognize him. Jesus makes sure that way, supernaturally. And they don't recognize him. And he says, hey, what are you guys talking about? I mean, this, I mean, I would love to be there for that. These two guys just kind of talking, and they're kind of animated. And, and the way that this is written in the original language just shows that there's a lot of emotion that was going on in between these two guys and their conversation. And so they're actually having this, uh, I, I want to say a spirited, but don't, don't interpret that as an argument. But they're just having a, a, a spirited uh, a conversation here. And, and so Jesus kind of walks up to him and is like, hey, what y'all talking about? <laughs> and you know, it's full well what they're talking about. And then, then their answers are like, are you the only one here that doesn't know about the things that have happened here? And so what does Jesus do? What things? <laughs> what are you talking about here? It's almost comical when you think about it here. Is that then there's like, it's like go into all these things here. And so the fact is that here's the point that I want to make is that they did not recognize Jesus. And he was right in front of them. But here's the thing that I want us to think about here for a second here is that Jesus is present in your life whether we recognize him or not, okay? He is there. He is alive. We sing about this. He is working in your life, and he is working things so that he is there. Now, now some of you are saying, now, wait a minute here, Jeremy. He's not there. I can't see him. I can't see him. He, he's not there. I, I, can't, I can't see him. I mean, you, know, you say Jesus is present here, but I've never seen him face to face. I don't know what he looks like. I know what all the art says he looks like, and it's probably not accurate. And I know all these type of things, but I, I don't know. I haven't seen Jesus. And I would say, you're probably right. You probably haven't seen Jesus. So how can I sit here and stand here? Or how can I stand here before you today and say that Jesus is present? Where do we find Jesus? You see, remember Jesus said he was going to go away and he was going to leave his spirit for us. But he was going to say that that, that way there, his spirit would represent him, the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, would point us to him. But the reality here is that Jesus is at work. And so here's what I, I want you to really meditate on today. I want you to meditate on the fact that Jesus is doing things and we probably just aren't even seeing it, Okay? I mean, here we have an example of two guys who are having this spirited conversation, this intense conversation about Jesus, and they couldn't see him. They couldn't recognize him there. But yet, he was there. So please, don't make the mistake of the fact that you don't recognize Jesus' presence in a certain situation that you may find yourself in, the fact that he is truly absent. Because he could be just right there, and you just don't see him yet. So the difficult situation at work. And you think that God has totally forgotten about it and God doesn't really even care about your work or God doesn't even care about your, your relationship with your coworkers or your supervisor or whoever it is, Jesus is present there. In your marriage, let me just tell you, Jesus is present there. 
how we spend our free time, how we spend our entertainment choices. Jesus is present there. Now some of you say, oh man, okay, now you're starting to meddle, and now you're starting to like make me feel guilty. Of that actually wasn't the angle that I was going with that. Now if you feel guilty when I say that, you deal with that with God. But the point that I was going is that Jesus is in, interested and involved in your life. You say, but Jeremy, you still haven't answered my question. I don't see him. And I would say, how about you can? Where does Jesus turn to these people to reveal himself? First, it was the word. Did you see that verse 27? I think it's 27. Yeah. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What he's doing there, the, the, the Moses and all the prophets, that's a short term for the scriptures that were available at the time. Uh, we refer to them, Protestants often refer to that as the Old Testament. Some people call it the First Testament. Some people refer to that as the Tanakh. Uh, there's different uh, 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 words for it, but we're really talking about the same set of, of books here. In our Bibles, there's 39 books in the Old Testament here. And that's what he's referring to there. So what he does is he takes all of those writings, all the prophets of Moses, which is the first five books of the Bible, um, and all the prophetic writings, and he goes through that and he begins to show them how that it was all paving the way and pointing to the coming Messiah. It starts even in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16, where we have this first promise, the first promise of a Redeemer that's going to come. And right from the beginning, right from that first time Adam and Eve sinned, there was a plan of redemption enacted, and we have to see this all the way through. And there are so many things in the Old Testament that point us to Christ. There are so many pictures and so many prophecies about Christ. In fact, there's something that were revealed, I mean, even in terms of how he was crucified. Psalm 22, you want to read, the, read Psalm 22 and tell me you can't see that that is a prophecy about Jesus Christ and how he was going to be crucified. You read Isaiah chapter 53, there's so many things about the Old Testament that point us to Christ. And so what Jesus does there, he says, you want to see me, you want to see what was going on, you should have been able to see me coming a mile away because of the scripture. So my friend, you don't need to see Jesus in a physical form right now because he's given us the word. He's given us the Bible. Read it. Know it. Study it. See Christ in it. Learn what you can learn about Christ in there. See his life. See his values. See what he has asked us to do. See his instructions for us. See his love. See his care. See his mercy. See his kindness. See his generosity. See his submission to the Father. See how he gathers people. See how he weeps over people. See how sin bothers him. See how that when children are abused, it brought anger out of him. See his compassion for the world. So don't tell me you haven't seen Jesus. You have the scriptures. You have the scriptures. That's what Jesus turns to. But it's not just that. It's not just, just that in the text. Where else do we see where Jesus is revealing himself here? In the breaking of bread. Did you see that? You see in the text here, it says, and he took, I'm in verse 30, and he was at table with them. He took the bread and he blessed and he broke it and gave it to him. And their eyes were open and they recognized him. Verse 35, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Now, to be clear, 
I do not think that Luke is recording this so that we can say that, okay, Jesus was having the Lord's Supper with them, and so that's what was happening here. No, I don't think that was the primary thing what Luke is recording for us here. But what Luke does record is that Jesus waited until there was table fellowship to reveal himself to disciples, and that's significant. And that's why we have this table here. This is why we celebrate this each weekly here because this is, it's my earnest desire. It's the elders' earnest desire here is that you see Christ at the table here. You see Christ. Now, the bread and the juice that we have here, they don't turn into anything else, but they are symbols and they represent the body that Jesus broke for us and the blood that he shed for us. And so it's our earnest desire that every week, when you've had a, whether you've had a great week and you're feeling on top of the world, or whether it's just been a really difficult week, that here at the table, you meet Jesus afresh because of what he's done for us. And so this is the thing. So Jesus is present. He's given us these, these, these opportunities for us to see him and interact with him through the scriptures at the table here And what we're spiritually nourished by here when we eat this bread and and drink this juice here in just a little bit here, that is what Jesus is saying. He says, hey, I'm here with you, and I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. My time is going. So we talked about, first of all, that Jesus is alive. I need to remind you of that today. Remember, most of what I do, most of my job is reminding people what they already know, okay? No one walked in here today thinking, wait a minute, Christians believe Jesus is alive? I didn't know that. <laughs> you know, no one, no one walked in here with that, okay? But I'm reminding you of something, and I'm just saying, you can believe it, and you can stake your hope on it, okay? Okay, you can do that. There's evidence for that. It's not just blind faith, okay? There's evidence. Jesus is alive. Jesus is present. I wanted to bring that up today because the text shows in a comical way of Jesus being in front of somebody here, but yet they're not recognizing it. And then Jesus using the word and using table fellowship to show his presence to these disciples. And so my my admonition then is to remind you to be students of the word. See Christ in the word is to be, and this is the reason why we have classes, that we teach these things, okay? And then also at the table here is that we see Christ spiritually present with us and we are nourished by his sacrifice. Okay, so Jesus is alive, Jesus is present, and I told you there was another one, and that the last point is this, Jesus is transforming lives. I, I don't know if you could see this, this transformation in these two disciples, in the beginning of it, it was in verse uh, 8, 17, they're looking sad. In verse 21, they talk about that they had hoped, but it was dashed. They had a, a testimony that was amazing to them in verse 22, but yet when they went there, they didn't see what they were hoping to see. They were hoping to see the risen Jesus there. Like the women said that they had saw, at least one of the women saw, said that they saw. But when they got there, yeah, the tomb was empty, and that was cool, but yet there was no Jesus there. They're still trying to figure all this out. So this emotional journey that these guys are on, but then it ends with this, did not, in verse 32, did not our hearts burn within us when he opens his scriptures? Now, I don't exactly know what that phrase means. Did our hearts burn within us? 
but it sounds pretty awesome, okay? It sounds, I mean, but I've experienced some of that when you just can't contain the excitement and the emotion and, 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 the, and the, I just can't believe this is true and this is real and I can't believe this is happening. This is gracing the world. Those are the emotions that are going through. How do they move from a sadness to now this where they're in the same hour? Remember, they have walked seven miles. They tell Jesus he has to spend the night because the, the daylight's uh, 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 fleeting really fast. And then that same hour, they hike it back seven miles back to Jerusalem that same night. What motivated them to make that return trip that same night? They were excited. They were transformed because of the risen Savior. And so, my friend, I just want to remind you that Jesus is transformed. Lives. That's what he wants to do, is that he wants to transform your life. We must live in light of the resurrection if we're going to have hope. Because remember, when these guys were living with the thought that Jesus was dead and that he had not risen from the dead, they had no concept of that. They were sad. They were dashed. But when they understood, wait a minute, we are living in the fact that Jesus is alive here. Now they have hope and now they have joy and now they have something worth living for. So much so it motivated them to hike it back seven miles back and, and celebrate with the, with the 12 disciples, 11 disciples here. So here's the point. The point is this, is that if we're not living each day in light of the resurrection, in the light of the fact that Jesus is alive, then we're not going to have a very good life. And the point of this sermon is not to tell, teach you to say, oh, God wants us to all be happy and wealthy and things like that. That's not the point. But the point is because, because that's not true. But the point is, is that we can have hope and we can have joy in no matter what circumstances, whether they're good or bad, because Jesus conquered the greatest enemy that we would ever face, and that is death, and that is eternal separation from God. And Jesus embraced that on the cross, rose from the dead, conquering that, so that we don't have to have that, that worry anymore. That's how we can have our hearts burning within us, like these two disciples here. It's so good when we think about it this way. He wants to change our lives. Romans chapter 6 says this. It says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So Paul here, writing to the Romans, he says, the reason why, just like Christ rose from the dead, he wants you to have a new life. He wants you to be renewed. That's the picture of baptism, by the way. In the waters of baptism, we go under the waters of baptism, where water there is a symbol of death in many ways. If you stay under the water too long, you die. So you go under the water, but then you're brought safely out of that and into a new life. Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Also in Romans chapter 6, we see that if we've, in verses 8 through 11, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So the point of the resurrection is that you would have a changed life. It's not just a cool historical fact. It's not just a, wow, you know, all those other religions, they have their thing. My religion has someone who rose from the dead. That's not the point of that. I mean, that's, that's cool, but that's not the main point of it. The main point of it is, is that you're transformed by this reality. You know, I, I praise God for what he's doing. 
we're seeing some transformation in our church. We're seeing people whose Christ is, is saving them and changing them. We're, we're seeing marriages strengthened and ones that were on the rocks restored. We're seeing addictions overcome. We're seeing trials that are not just endured but embraced with joy. We're seeing lives transformed. We just sang about that in that song, Great Things. It says that you free every captive and you break every chain. We're seeing evidence of that here. I asked permission. I asked permission on, um, on Good Friday. I, I had asked Nate to, uh, to read uh, scripture for us here. Here's a picture. Nate not, is not here today. He's visiting his family. I asked him, I said, hey, can I share this uh, with the church family? And he said, yeah, yeah, sure, go ahead. I took that picture because I was sitting on the front row. And, um, you know, not too long ago, uh, Nate, I mean, he was not a Christian at all. And he was the furthest thing from living for God. And God radically saved him. And, and he's just growing in Christ. He's not perfect. He'll be the first to tell you that. But he is growing in Christ. And so I took this picture, uh, just, just kind of grateful for what God is doing. Here we have a young man reading scripture at a Good Friday service here. You know, uh, we have, you know, a verse on the screen behind. We have, you know, Stephanie staring off into the distance. Okay, all right. And so, so we, have, we have this happening here. So it's, it's really, really cool picture. So I texted this to Nate. And I said, I said, would you? have believed uh, three years ago? I said, three years ago, would you have believed that this picture was real? And he responded to me, and then he, he gave me permission to share this. This is what he said. He said, um, I would have never believed this three years ago. Only God can write my story, or all of our stories for that matter. His grace is overwhelming. Jesus Christ saves to the uttermost. To God be the glory. Like we sang last night at the Good Friday service, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. He really bore all of our sins on that cross. I think back to my life of living in complete wickedness and rebellion. Only God is so good. I also think of the roller coaster it's been since he saved me and how he has always picked me up when I've stumbled. He truly will not let us go. Nobody can snatch us out of his hand. You know, God is transforming lives. But here's the thing. Here's what you need to know. It's not because of me. It's not because of the elders of the church. It's not because of this church. So I'm not up here saying, hey, look what, look what I'm doing or look what the elders are doing or look what this church is doing. The reason why Nate was able to give that testimony is because there is an empty tomb. That's why. Because the resurrection changes everything. And it transforms life. So my friend, my friend, everybody here needs Jesus to transform your life every day. So my question is, how is God changing you? How is Jesus changing you? What sins need to be repented of? What area of your life do we just need to give over to him? What relationship do you have right now that is off limits that you need just to give over to Christ? What part of your life is closed off? My friend, give it all to Christ transform. Let him transform you. The resurrection of Jesus Christ means that our lives are transformed. Romans chapter 6 teaches us. And so, as I bring this to a close, I'm encouraging you to follow Christ. And I'm encouraging you to follow Christ not just because it is right, but because it is best. You see, we all know, or many times we know what the right thing is to do. But we don't always do it. Why is that? 
Why is it that when we know what the right thing to do is, but we don't do it? It's because we're not convinced it's best. Okay? We know it's the right thing to do, but we don't know if it's best. And so for all the teenagers here and children in here, and I'm speaking to adults too, but let me just talk to the teens and the, and, and the, and the children here just for a second here. You're in church on Sunday. Praise God for that. Okay? I grew up going to church, and I'm so grateful my parents took me to church. If you know it's the right thing to do on a Sunday morning, there's going to be kind of a time, you know, if you're going to start making that decision for yourself of whether or not you're going to gather for worship, whether you're not going to follow Jesus Christ. And so my, my challenge, my encouragement to you is believe and know that following Jesus is not just the right thing to do. It's the best thing for you. Adults in the room, Model that for the next generation. Parents, grandparents, teach this reality to your kids and to your grandchildren that following Jesus isn't just the morally right thing to do. It is absolutely best for them and for the glory of God. And the empty tomb transforms lives. And so I told you this morning, here I just remind you this, that Jesus is alive, he's present, and he's transforming lives.